So hi everyone, this is the knowledge video for the luminal section and for more specifically for dysphagia. I'm Michael, I'm one of the gastroenterology registrars currently working at St George's and I'll let my colleague introduce himself. Hello everyone, my name is Krithi, one of the ST4 based in North Middlesex Hospital. So together we're going to go through the, the kind of knowledge of that you need to know about dysphagia, its kind of background, the clinical approach to it, investigations and interpretation of that, and then some brief stuff about treatments. And hopefully that will give a good base for everything to do with this presenting complaint. So with all that, I'll hand over to Krithi and we'll start going through. Brilliant. Thank you, Michael. So we're just going to go through the definition of dysphagia first, followed by history and examination, and how would you approach to a patient presenting with dysphagia, either in a patient setting or on the acute take. So dysphagia is defined as the subjective awareness of difficulty in the passage of, passage of food from the oral cavity to the stomach. It can occur either due to an anatomical or physiological dysfunction at the level of oropharynx, esophagus, and signifies a delay in bolus transit or merely the sensation thereof. Dysphagia symptoms can range from difficulty initiating a swallow to the awareness of obstruction or sensation of food getting stuck in the esophagus. In clinical practice, the presentation can be acute or chronic. Acute dysphagia commonly presents as food bolus obstruction and may require urgent endoscopic treatment to remove the food bolus. Chronic presentations on the other on the other hand, warrant a thorough clinical history and diagnostic evaluation, followed by the use of appropriate treatment modalities. So detailed clinical history is vital to characterize dysphagia based on the anatomical location, uh, which we can divide into high oropharyngeal versus low versus esophageal, and further subdivided based on the underlying pathology, structural versus motility disorders. So in terms of history, I'm just going to show you this nice flowchart, a step-by-step -step guidance on how to approach a patient presenting dysphagia. As so you can see, to see that there, hopefully, quickly. Yep, clear and nice. As you could see in this flowchart, as mentioned before, dysphagia can be widely divided into two main subgroups, oropharyngeal and esophageal. Oropharyngeal dysphagia is often related to neurological disorders or ability disorder. As you can see, symptoms differ quite differently between these two groups of dysphagia. For oropharyngeal dysphagia, you often have problems with the initiation of swallowing. You often get symptoms such as regurgitation or coughing on swallowing and signs of aspiration. And patients often point towards neck, which we also refer to as high dysphagia. Esophageal dysphagia, on the other hand, starts after a few seconds of swallowing. It can be associated with regurgitation of undigested food. And the location of dysphagia, patient often points towards a suprasternal or retrosternal area. Globus, on the other hand, is just the sensation of feeling a lump in the throat. It can be due to anxiety or a psychological disorder. Esophageal dysphagia can be further divided into a structural cause or a motility cause. In terms of structural obstruct or mechanical obstruction, most patients often have dysphagia purely to solids. This can be further divided based on, is this intermittent or is this something progressive? Intermittent dysphagia are often due to esophageal rings or webs or use in the philegosophagitis. Whereas progressive dysphagia can be related to esophageal stricture, which is progressive or esophageal cancer. Moving on to the next type of second category of esophageal dysphagia, which is the motility disorder. 
patients often reports of dysphagia to both solids and liquids or purely to liquids. This again can be divided into intermittent or progressive. Intermittent motility disorder is often secondary to esophageal spasm, whereas progressive motility disorder can either be due to achalasia or autoimmune conditions such as clerkdoma. So I think that was a very sorry to interrupt quickly. I think that's I think that's a this you know this flow chart is is brilliant, and I think you got it from a recent publication frontline, didn't you? And I think it is really good. I think it gives a really structured approach as to how you should think about these kind of pathologies. Obviously, in real life, there tends to be a fair amount of crossover between each of these conditions and each of these presentations. But as you've kind of very nicely summarized, you know, that's when you're approaching the history of these patients, whether it be in an exam or in real life, then actually this is a really good way of of breaking it down in your head and having a really structured approach to make sure you don't miss anything there. Thank you, Michael. And so in addition to what we've just described in terms of differentiating oropharyngeal esophageal dysphagia, we would also need to inquire about other symptoms. Firstly, you need to know about the onset of the symptom and the duration of the symptoms. Is it something that's been going there for weeks or is it something that's been going there for years as the latter is unlikely to be of a malignant process? Uh, Again, you will need to know the site of dysphagia, solids or liquids, or intermittent or constant as described before. Other associated symptoms that you need to inquire about, do they have any dinophagia, as you can have this in patients presenting with esophagitis or candidiasis. You need to inquire about episodes of reflux, as this can lead to strictures or reflux esophagitis. We also need to ask about halitosis or regurgitation, as this can be seen in peritoneal pouch or Zenka diverticulum. We need to inquire about aspiration, signs of recurrent chest infections, and also about chest pain, where you can see where it can present itself in cases such as diffuse esophageal spasm and achalasia. Past medical history is also quite vital. You need to inquire about any neurological disorder, such as previous strokes. Parkinson's, rheumatological conditions such as scleroderma, HIV as that can lead to candidiasis, or atopy conditions such as asthma as, as a close association with eosinophilic esophagitis. Moving on to your drug history, a wide range of drugs and medication can cause dysphagia, predominant motility disorders, for instance, opiates, sedatives, tricyclics, antidepressants can cause some form of motility disorders. It's also important to inquire about bisphosphonates as they can cause esophagitis. Social history, like you would do in any other presenting complaint, you need to inquire about smoking and alcohol as they are risk factor for malignancy. And most importantly on social history, we need to assess, is the patient fit enough for further investigations? Are they frail? Do they have many comorbidities? And are they too, just simply too frail to pursue more invasive investigations? So that's sort of brief summary in terms of history when it comes to dysphagia. Yeah, I think that was I think that was very detailed. I think you covered all of the kind of important points, and and you know, and as we as you kind of showed with that with that flow diagram, the key is there. You know, there's a broad differential when someone's describing dysphagia, and and it's a spectrum disease, and and having a structured approach and and going through it as you did is really the key to getting you know an accurate differential there, and then uh, and then you can you know take take things forward from there. And I think you're going to talk about the investigations that you would think about doing now. Indeed. Thank you. So investigations, you know, uh, you're going to start off with the basic blood test first, uh, in particular looking at any signs of anemia, particularly iron deficiency anemia. You can look at platelet because you can get thrombocytosis uh, in cases of malignancy suspected. 
You know, then look at biochemistry, importantly looking is to the patients have any AKI as a result of poor diet or dehydration, looking at the electrolytes. You also can look at the albumin level as often if they have a prolonged phase of dysphagia, they are likely to be malnourished and cachectic. And you'll also need to look at the LFTs just to look for multi-system involvement. Or if you're suspecting malignancy, uh, if they have liver meds, they can have deranged LFTs. Those are the basic blood tests that you should do in someone presenting dysphagia. The next line of investigations would be an OGD, as it is the most useful investigation for esophageal dysphagia, as it provides detailed information on the anatomy, along with the capability to assess the mucosa and obtain biopsies at the same point. It's most useful to diagnose malignant or pre-malignant causes, such as strictures, dysplasia in Barrett's esophagus, or evaluate for eosinophilic esophagitis, and can be used for therapeutic interventions when needed. The other investigations that we often use or request for patient presenting dysphagia is barium swallow. Uh, as you would know, this involves asking the patient to swallow a liquid and a semi-solid barium sulfate followed by a fluoroscopic assessment to identify both structural or functional abnormalities in the esophagus. It can be a useful adjunctive test to gastroscopy, depending on the initial presenting symptom. For, for instance, it can be more sensitive to identify esophageal rings and strictures, which may be missed on an index endoscopy, and be helpful for detection of more proximal esophageal lesions, such as pharyngeal pouch or Zenker's diabetic. For instances, cases like motility disorders, such as achalasia, they often have a very typical appearance, such as the bird beak appearance, or a nutcracker esophagus in the cases of diffuse esophageal spasm. And another useful test that often get requested for patients presenting with dysphagia is esophageal manometry with impedance. High-resolution esophageal manometry is the gold standard for diagnosis of esophageal motility disorders. It involves recording pressure profiles of the esophageal sphincter and the musculature using water perfuse and solid-state transducers, which then generates sort of graphs using a computer software looking at evidence if there is any motility disorder. This is most important in the investigation of echolasia, where you have failure of the lower esophageal sphincter to relax in response to swallowing. Echolasia can be further divided into further subtypes, which we'll discuss at a later stage. I think that sort of summarizes the key investigations that is used in investigations of dysphagia. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. There's not really much else that we would tend to do for investigating dysphagia usually. Often, obviously, if you're worried about a malignant process, which even in an older person with new onset dysphagia, you kind of will always be as the first point of view. You'd obviously do some kind of cross-sectional imaging usually associated with that, usually a CT scan. But as you kind of alluded to, Krithi, OGDs are really, really useful, you know, not just to look for kind of structural causes and rule out a malignancy as well as take biopsies for it but in a skilled and experienced endoscopist hand they can give you a huge amount of information about the esophagus and about the causes of it so you mentioned two things there barrett's they can you know you can do incredibly close examination of the esophagus with zoom lenses and and narrowband imaging to look for any evidence of dysplasia or pre-malignancy or pre-malignant cells there and then for eosinophilic esophagitis you can look for kind of macroscopic signs of, of disease. So whether that be tracheolization or fibrosis or strictures, and it is, you know, and 
if there is a stricture there, then you can biopsy it and prove there's no malignancy and that allows you to then die, to dilate it at a later date. So it is immensely useful in OGD and I would just kind of highlight that at the beginning. And, you know, high resolution manometry is becoming more and more useful as well. It's been around for a fair while and the Chicago classification does really make it quite easy to interpret to kind of semi-expert level and you can really go there and, and get a good diagnosis and, and allow you to put a, an effective management plan in place for them.